Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Joshua 4. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan River that the Lord spoke to Joshua. This is the second command Joshua got. He got the first command in the last chapter. Saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan and place them where the priest's feet stood firm. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he appointed. That was back in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. From the children of Israel, one from man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So the memorial stones, God is going to command them to make a memorial. This is not what we would call good battle strategy, to stop and build monuments, but that's what the Israelites are going to do. Uh, in Genesis 12 on, this moment's a big deal, and that's why it's taking four chapters to cross a river, is because this is the culmination of the entire Pentateuch. Way back in Genesis 12, God promised that Israel would be a nation, that they would be as countless as the, the stars in the sky. Everything has been about Israel getting back into this land ever since they left for Egypt um, and, and getting out of Exodus, getting out, moving in the wilderness. It's always been about getting into the land. So the Bible slows down to a point-by-point, step-by-step, meticulous recording of the crossing of the Jordan because this is the moment and I don't think we should lose sight of that like for us we've been studying the Bible for two years this is kind of the from from their perspective this is the end of the story this is all God had in mind or all God had in store but we know God's way bigger than us and he's going to weave into this step-by-step account that they make he's going to paint a picture a very clear picture of a salvation plan and what it looks like with Jesus Christ. And I love this stuff. It's really fun. So get your pens ready and get ready to take notes on this stuff. We'll be doing some back and forth. But it's a central theme. It, every patriarch was promised that they would get this land. Jacob's bones, remember in Genesis 50, verse 4, were taken out of Egypt. They pulled them out of the grave to bring his bones into the land. So they're carrying a bag of bones with them right now somewhere with the Ark of the Covenant that was made to lead them into the land, the law so that they could be a people, not a slave group, but they could be a people set aside for God and set apart for God. This land of milk and honey, Exodus 3.8, everything then has been in preparation for this moment. So when they got in the river and they put their feet in the water, and I, you know, I love that image too. They put their feet in the water. God just said, go this direction, and they went this direction, and then he started to do a wonder, and he stops the Jordan, and we talked about that last week. The first major fulfillment of God's main promise to Israel is happening right now at this moment, and it looks like a mirror image of the departure from Egypt. 
So the parting of the waters happens at the end of the departure for Egypt. The beginning of the wonders is where the river parts at the entrance into the promised land. And then the credibility comes for Moses after years and years and years of leading Israel. The credibility for Joshua comes right at the beginning. And they follow him immediately. They cross into the wilderness, and now they're crossing into a land of abundance, coming out of the wilderness. So everything's kind of a mirror image of what we saw back in Exodus. And the New Testament law brings us into this same kind of thing. So in the New Testament, the law brings us into the wilderness, but with Jesus, Yeshua brings us into the land of milk and honey. So it's a spiritual reverse, too. Everything's going the right direction for the Israelites. They're going to screw it up, but that's later on in life. So they pick these 12 men. It's recounted in the past tense. And so those first uh, five verses are all in the past tense, something that happened before. And we're going to see if you really get into the tenses and these chapters of Joshua, they don't seem to be always in chronological order but they are in a spiritual order, and we'll get to that at the end tonight. Like, this all stacks up really nice. Um, but they're not necessarily, they're kind of going backwards to talk about these stones as they're doing this. So they get safe passage. They're going to grab the stones. I'm thinking if you get one man from every tribe, if they're like every human I've ever met, you're going to pick the biggest, strongest guy you can get, right? So the Gadites are bringing out their massive Gadite dude because the goal is to pick up a stone from the bottom of the Jordan River, a tumbling river. So... I'm also thinking, human nature says, they're probably going to get the biggest stone they can find because they're showing the pride of their tribe as they do this. So this is going to be a moment of just kind of fun, enthusiasm. There's zero concern about the enemy about two miles away. Um, they're going to be picking up these stones. They're going to be huge. They're probably going to be competing with each other. Um, and as they go, they're going to be taking an ascent on each step. As they come out of the Jordan, they're going up. And they're leaving this. They're leaving this kind of wilderness by walking up out of the Jordan. Except for they're going to have some flat verbiage too. We'll cut. We'll get to that when we get there. So the two and a half tribes that have stayed back. Remember, we only have about forty thousand men of Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh. The rest of those tribes are still back in to the east of here, and they're not seeing any of this. So a lot of what the wonders of God are happening, the people that aren't with the children of God right now are going to be the first to fall away from the children from God. So later on, it's those tribes that are the first to go into idol worship. They're the first to fall away, largely because they're not hanging with the group, right? They're never going to see what God does because they're not with the people where God's doing his work. So those people aren't here right now, which is kind of a, just a contextual thing. And then we have this idea of building memorials. Verse 6, that it might be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? It's odd because they're marching into this territory of Jericho, where, which is probably the most fortified city in this part of the world right now. And what they're doing is they're going to stop and build a memorial. They're not arming for war. They're not marching on the city. You would think the element of surprise alone would be caused to just go right to Jericho and attack the city but we don't see any evidence of siege weaponry being built, no preparations. In fact, what they're doing is building memorials to remember what God's doing. So I just love the nature of Israel and what they're doing here. And sometimes you build things, not for yourself, but for your kids, verse 6. Sometimes what we do as believers is we build something so that our kids will have something to see and that we can, they, we can show them stuff from our life and remind them of the stories that we need to tell them. So these memorials are going to be here. It's, 
verses 21 and 23, it even goes into the idea of like what you're supposed to say to your kids when they ask, which means this is on a major trade, trade route going north, south, and east, west. So you'd see these stones. Again, they must have been fairly big. Um, so you, the idea is you'd go buy them and the kid would say, what's that thing for? And kids do that. They ask those questions. And they give you very specific instructions as to what you're supposed to say. So I think what they're going to say is, like, we got to the river and he made us wait there for three days. Remember last week? We, we just had to sit for three days. And then when he said to move, we moved and the river moved. Why didn't God move the river at the beginning of the three days? Why was the waiting period there? And the parents and the kids would start having this conversation. Sometimes God makes you wait. Sometimes God tells you to move. And you're having those very deep theological kind of conversations with your kids because there's a pile of rocks in the middle of the road. And I think God thinks of these kinds of things, even though they may be thinking about other things. It also says that the battle that we're fighting here is a spiritual battle. It's 100% a spiritual battle. Because we're not dealing with anything military. We're only dealing with things like how to raise your kids in the middle of this conquest sequence. Making this account of history unique from any other ancient history you can read. You can read the Babylonians, the Assyrians. We even have some Hittite records, Egyptians. None of them get into this kind of detail. And none of them talk about how they're building memorials right before they get into a battle. You know, you'd think you'd want to build a memorial after you win the battle but not here because the battle's already been won and it's already happening. So God's active, he's in the world and you get this idea of waiting on God. Verse seven says, then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. So they're kind of repeating themselves. But there's this idea that one thought is that the water cuts off before the Ark of the Covenant, not before the people. So God and what God's doing has this relationship with the law, which is in the Ark of the Covenant, that's very important. And it's a piece where if you want to get closer to God, at least know what the law says, because God's going to respect that as a boundary in our lives. So they make the memorial. That memorial is still going to be clear. This is what we almost got to talking about out by the barbecue. By the time John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river, he makes a reference to these stones, and he's about 100 meters away from this spot. So the Israelites mark this spot, and they keep it marked the entire time that they're in the land. So we know that, that this, the spot today has the church of John the Baptist, and we know exactly where this crossing happened. So it's well marked. It's well kind of there. It's also under Palestinian control. So the markers that are there, the historical markers that are there, have a completely revisionist history of what's there. So if you go on tour to Israel and they take you to this spot, your tour guide will tell you what it says in the Bible and where those things are and how they know those things. And that, But the little pamphlet you get at this tourist attraction is kind of, you know, it's kind of a revisionist history kind of thing at this spot. Passover then is um, the first major monument is the, the holiday of Passover. This is the second major monument that Israel is going to have, the crossing of the Jordan. Where the Passover brings them into a relationship with God, this brings them to the land that God promised, part of that relationship too. And monuments are there to remember things and remember events. Only people that want to rewrite history will tear down monuments. The, the monument is there because something happened that was significant to those people in history. And a lot of times monuments in the, the Jewish and Christian world are built because we felt like God did a thing. 
And we want to remember that thing. So we write God all over the monument, right? Like they put up the, the, the monument with the law and actually wrote the law on the stones. It's because the, God gave them that law and that was important to them. So they wanted their kids to remember it. It's really dangerous when you get civilizations like the Romans that moved into a territory and start ripping down monuments of the people that were there. It was the very first cancel culture. They didn't want that culture to be remembered. They didn't want memory because memory gives people strength. And memory gives people a common identity and it gives them a unity. So this memorial that's there stays with the Israelites for a long time. They take care of this memorial. And because of that, we know where this spot is today. So moving forward from here in the Bible, most of what we talk about has archaeological evidence that goes with it, has historical records that go with it. Most of it's corroborated from other civilizations. Um, not that you need that necessarily. Um, but anyone who disregards a monument disregards the people that were there at the time, and they disregard the God that interacted with those people. It's a very dangerous thing when that happens. But this is a monument to God, and it's, and it's representative of that. Verse 8, And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged. Verse 19, um, the place where they lodge is going to be Gilgal. It's about six miles from the spot where they cross. So that's a six-mile hike with these stones that they've grabbed in pride. <laughs> they got to haul these things six miles. So maybe the smart tribes grab the smaller stones because um, that's a long hike for anyone. Then Joshua, verse 9, set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and there they are to this day. In other words, the Lord commands them to take up those stones from the midst and carry them to the place where they lodge, six miles. But then Joshua, in verse 9, takes initiative and puts another pile of stones in the middle of the Jordan. Had to be big stones because when the water comes back, those stones will get tumbled down the river naturally, right? So they had to be stones that would stay there for a long time. So this is a second monument that Joshua is going to make. If that's going to happen, then the people holding the ark in the middle of the river, the ones holding the water back, or the ark that God's holding the water back for, you're thinking this is an entire day. So I just, the grit of holding up a cedar box lined with gold on your shoulders for an entire day you have to think at some level that these priests were pretty burly, and there's no record here that they're switching out. They're just standing there, letting that thing dig into their shoulders, adjusting every so often, but doing it out of a, a faithfulness. In other words, sometimes being faithful to God could actually hurt. So the work they're doing here, lifting stones, carrying stones, letting that thing sink into their shoulder, um, all of this takes time to build memorials, and one of those memorials is going to be in the middle of the river. So I'm thinking that the Levite priests at this moment are going, Joshua, God didn't command us to do that. Why are you doing that? But he does. Now, apparently, um, there's no rush whatsoever to storm the walls of Jericho. And I, um, I think that's a huge point here, that instead of crossing the river and saying, thank you, God, and rushing the city, they stop and they build these miracles and they find this camping spot at Gilgal. They settle in somewhere and they make camp. It allows maximum time for the Jerichoans to get the heck out of there. Because as all this is happening about two miles away, Jericho is kind of on an elevated position. They can see all of this and have their spies reporting back everything that's happening. And imagine the reports that are coming back. 
Well, the water just stopped. Can you see it? Like they're crossing, two million people are crossing the river. Oh, and they're building monuments. Like what are they doing building monuments? But it gets crazier. So the priests who bore the ark in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. So move it along, kids. The bearing, uh, getting this done, building the monument, all of this is happening while the people are crossing the river. Again, chronologically, it doesn't always go in order, but we'll come back to that. So if they're crossing over while the priests are holding the ark, here's another cool moment. Usually the ark travels in the middle of the cross when they're traveling around the wilderness, right? But at this point, the, mark, the, the ark stays put and all the people get to cross by the law of God. And I'm thinking Middle East, sunny day, shining off a gold ark. This thing's brilliant to look at. It had to be amazing by anybody's standards. So they all get to come close to that ark, get to walk by it, um, respect the priests that are holding it up. But they're hurrying, I think, in part because they can see that thing's heavy. And this takes time. And the, art, the rock moving takes time. But this is an exciting event. The word hurried and crossed over has a strong implication of just enthusiasm. Like they can't wait. Like they just opened the gates at Valley Fair and you get to go see if you can not have a line at your first couple rides. There's that kind of childlike exuberance of it's finally happening. We've been in the wilderness for 40 years because of our idiot parents. And now we get to be coming into the land and it's happening. And they're taking their steps through the riverbed and walking out of it. It had to be a cool moment for every single person going through it. So that hurried and crossed over is there's a great excitement here that's happening. It's a moment. It's tough to read because they're crossing a river. But if, from their perspective, they're crossing the river, coming into the promised land. This is what they had hoped for their whole life. And finally, it's here. It's like a brand new believer, right? that struggled with sin their whole life or just been dead inside their whole life and then they accept Christ and something just sparks to life. I'm thinking as they cross the Jordan, they have that kind of feeling like this is when history begins. It's all starting now. It's the beginning of a movie. It's the intro to Lion King when they close that opening song and you're like, awesome movie. I stood up in the theater and I was like, well, that was a great movie, honey. Let's go home. But it was only the opening and it was just like, wow, what do we got coming after this? So the Jordan stops, they're crossing over the river, and there's this huge enthusiasm that goes with it. They hurried and crossed over. Verse 11, Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priest covered, crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben and the men of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. So this would be, people that figure out the math on this figure that they needed about a one-mile-wide part of the Jordan River to cross that many people in one day because that's a ton of people to move. So it had to be about a mile wide to move all these people across the river. Um, also note in verses 11 and 12 that something changes with the language. They're not going down to the Jordan or up out of the Jordan, and they'll go up out of it here in a few verses. But right now they're just crossing over. Do you see that in verse 11? It's two times it says crossed over. And then it says it a third time in verse 12 that they crossed over, crossed, crossed, crossed. So you have a cross right in the middle of this whole event. And that's an English play on words, which I think is cute. But the reality here, I think the Hebrew part is the, the word crossed implies no elevation kind of thing. Like they were walking on a bridge. There wasn't an uphill and there wasn't a downhill. It was just an even crossing. 
And that image that God makes this part of it super easy for them. And the idea that they're crossing over is also in the Hebrew, it's a play on words too, because the word Hebrew means those that cross over. And that's why that word gets used in the middle of this event. So they say it three times here. They're pointing it out and they arrive. I, th I get the sense that as the men of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, these kind of tough warriors, these elite crew come walking up. And we know from David's records that the men of Gad were legendary. They were like the Spartans. They were those people. So these guys are going, and they march in front. It's like when the elves arrive at Helm's Deep. And there's this feeling of like, oh, now we got the army in front. And they're moving them there. So you think they're getting ready for battle, but they're not. God's got them doing some other things here. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle, the pains of Jericho. There's the word cross a fourth time. This is a fraction of the total count of males. In other words, they're following the law. You remember back when we studied the rules for soldiers, that there were ways to go home and not fight? You would assemble and show up for assembly. But if you were a young guy and you just got married, go home and be with your wife. If you were a young guy and you didn't have your vocation up and your crops weren't bearing fruit yet, go home and take care of your vineyards. If you got any fear in your heart, go home. We don't want fearful people in the army. So the men of Gad, when we see that 40,000 number, there would have been, when we saw the numbers and the counting, about 110,000 men in those tribes. But when there's only 40,000, it means over half of them went home because of fear and young families and getting their vocation up and running. Kind of cool, huh? This isn't exactly like a, you know, a society of people ready to do combat and battle. This is a society of people saying, eh, if you don't want to fight, don't fight. Don't get into it if you're not in the mood for it. I like this when it comes to volunteering because I work with an organization and a lot of volunteers right now. Don't volunteer unless you're having fun. If you're not kind of excited to do this, don't jump in it. Like there's no obligation or anything like that. And, and it keeps volunteers so they keep coming back. So it's a fraction of their total count, but they're keeping their promise from Joshua 1.12. They're there. They're where they're supposed to be. They're obeying the promise or, or keeping the vow that they made. All of this is getting observed by Jericho. We can't forget back at the walls, they're watching all of this happen. And they got to be thinking. Like It has to be this sinking heart feeling of, oh, crap. We're in a lot of trouble here. And that's what Rahab said was happening. She said their hearts were melting. So about seven miles away, we see, um, I'm sorry, about two miles away is where they're going to get to Gilgal. Gilgal is going to be about seven miles right up the, the plain or the valley from Jericho. So they're just kind of marching, not towards Jericho, but west. And Jericho is a little southwest of where they're at to get your mental maps in order. So this is a good day. They're all there. It all happens. On that day, verse 14, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. This is a promise kept. God said that the people will fear you back in Joshua 3.7. That promise is already being made. Of course, the water stopped. <laughs> and he says, do this, and they do it, and God acts. So they're respecting that God is with Joshua now. And he raises up not the person angling for attention, but the person who faithfully served Moses for 40 years. He's raising up the faithful and the, the diligent. Joshua doesn't seem to put himself in front intentionally in, in any way that we see it. But God elevates him to be one of the greatest leaders of Israel that we're going to have. So verse 14 is kind of the end of the account. You'd put, you'd put your scroll down. The next scroll would start in verse 15. But there, that's kind of a natural Hebrew chapter break right there. But that is the account of what it happened. 
And verse 15 starts with the word then. In other words, sequentially, that's all finished. The crossing of the river is done. Congratulations, they've moved into the Holy Land. We can start the rest of the Bible. So then we get to the third stage. God's going to talk to Joshua a third time and give him another set of instructions. It's, and I'm pointing that out because it's kind of cool. God doesn't tell Joshua the whole game plan up front. It's like you go this far and Joshua does. Then he says the next set of instructions and he does. When we get into things, God often doesn't show us the whole game plan. He only shows us what to do today and how to be faithful today. And we do that and it's a good thing. This gets so cool. So chapter 3, 7, uh, we get this idea that the priests are going to um, go up in front. Chapter 4, 1, or the commands of God, chapter 3, 7 was get the priests to go to the water. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it was get the 12 stones and make these monuments. And now we get a third command from God that's about the priests again. So verse 15, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Testimony to come up from the Jordan. Notice the direction was up now. They're not crossing over, they're coming up. So that's two different ways to phrase it, and there's intention in that. We'll get to that at the end. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed with all its banks before. So all of a sudden, the water crashes down. And we talked about like that idea of, is this a supernatural wall of water or was there a, a, an earthen cave-in in up at the city of Adam and then all of a sudden that washes out and all the water comes back? The timing of it is what's being pointed out by the Bible. It was the second that the priest's feet left the riverbed that the water came back. So regardless of how it happened, the timing of how it happened is what the Bible points out as the miracle. The miracle here is just the, the timing of it was perfect. God wanted no question that this was a supernatural intervention from God blessing them as they come into the Holy Land. This is a whole new covenant, right? Because the covenant with the manna and the water out in the wilderness, that was all provision for them out in the wilderness. But when they come into the promised land, they're supposed to like be able to eat the fruit of the land. So they're going to start a whole new relationship with God when it comes to even their daily provision. So... They come up out of the water in verse 16. Prior to that, they were crossing, but now they're coming up. Um, it's called the Ark of the Testimony here. Did you notice they changed the name of it? Verse, which verse is that? Verse 16, bear the Ark of the Testimony. Earlier, it was the Ark of the Covenant, the promise. But now it's the Ark of the Testimony because before it was a promise, now it's a record, right? Now that we're going to testify to what God has done, and we're going to see that that name can go back and forth. It'll be referred to as covenant again, but here it's a testimony of what God has done because it was written down what he would do, and here he is doing it. And they'd been keeping these scrolls for generations. So there's an emphasis with the testimony as to the word of God and what God is saying where the covenant, the emphasis is on the promises. So we see this whole process step by step in four full chapters, each framed by a commandment of God and what God wanted them to be doing. So to Joshua, God gives the instructions. Joshua then gives the instructions to the people. The people do what God wants them to do through the mediator of Joshua. That's the arrangement that they have. Every single detail is particularly pointed out 
And in verse 18, we just see that too. It was the soles of their feet touched the dry land. So people like me dangling my foot, it wouldn't have worked. It was as soon as it touched. So they're watching this happen and, and paying attention to these details. I think sometimes in life, sometimes we don't pay attention. We're going through and thinking about what we're doing all the time and we don't see what God's doing in our lives because we don't look and we don't pay attention to those details. Keeping a journal is one way to pay attention to details because you can write something down, have a testimony of what happened and be able to read back and look at that. Having a spouse to remind you of what you said five months ago is a way that we can keep a record of what happens. But that's part of how we as a body can pay attention to what's going on and tune into it. So we can pray for things together and then when they happen, we remember that we prayed for those things. If you never look back and pay attention to the details, you'd never see that God's quietly doing things in your life. It's kind of amazing. So we see uh, Israel moving in unity, obedience, and now they're moving in victory. The waters recede. They go back to normal. Or they accede. What would be the right word be there? The waters return. Um, now in verse 19, now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. So they make that second monument. Gilgal is going to be their main camp for a while as they conquer the Promised Land. Gilgal is going to be their home base. This is their beachhead. So they're going to go out and conquer from different directions, but they're going to keep coming back to Gilgal. So it's going to be kind of a precious spot for them. It's the picture of Israel returning to the land. It's why John the Baptist went here to do his ministry. Because as these people came up out of the Jordan River, he would baptize people by lowering them in, and then what? Bring them up out of the river in a, as a new creation, embracing the promises of God and purifying themselves and setting themselves apart for God to follow the Messiah when he shows up. So we have this idea or this image that's really important to Israel because this is where it all starts. It's the place of beginnings. Yeshua is going to start from here, Joshua, Jesus. Both start from this location, this geographic location. This is where they start their ministries and they start their work together at the same place. And they're going to reclaim the land. Joshua does it physically. Jesus does it spiritually. And then they're going to be a light to all nations. Israel's going to be a beacon of hope for all nations. Jesus and his followers will be a beacon of hope to all nations. Same kind of idea. And meanwhile, up in Jericho, you just saw two million people making camp on, your, on, on the east border of your city. What do you say if you're a soldier on the walls watching that happen when you go home at night and talk to your family? I don't know about you, but I would say, honey, pack your things. We're out of here. We're gone. This is, I saw the river stop. I saw these people, instead of making war, they're making monuments. And I saw these soldiers get up ready to go and they're not even charging the city. They have zero concern about us. And we're a pretty powerful force, but these people have God with them. And they know that. So at least for me, I'd be going home saying, honey, it's time to go. Let's pack up. Let's get out of here. And I think when there's danger, this happens all the time across the world. All humans do this. When you feel like your life is threatened, that's where we get refugees from. Like it doesn't matter what's on the other side of that border. We're going to go there because what's on this side is certain death. So we know archaeologically that the Canaanites 
utterly diaspora at this particular Iron Age period of history. They go to Egypt, they go to Babylon, they go to Assyria, they go to the Hittites. They go up into Europe. They have Canaanite remnants and genie, and this is all stuff they're finding out in the last 20 years because they can look at the genetics of the bones. And they can go, oh, this is, what's a Canaanite doing up in Italy? But they went everywhere. They just got out of the Holy Land at this period. And I think what God's doing where he's making the Israelites wait, even in their exuberance, is he's giving these people a chance to get out of here and make a life for themselves somewhere else. And they do. It's part of what builds Babylon in the distance is they get this influx of immigrants. It helps their economy. It's the same thing that's helping to build Assyria. They get an influx of immigrants that helps to build their economy. So we have storylines playing out here that aren't mentioned in the Bible that we should be well aware of. And I think little Jewish students studying Joshua would be well aware of this too. They would point out, oh, this is what, what happened to the Canaanites. Verse 21, then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in a time to come saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know saying, Israel crossed over on dry land for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of God that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So verses 21 through 24 are kind of repeating what was earlier in the chapter, which makes you think there's probably a chiastic form there. I couldn't find one. But it is kind of a repeat of Joshua saying to the people, this is what you tell your kids when they see these stones. So we got one entire chapter under our belts. And the entire point of this chapter is that they have crossed the river and they're going to remember what God did here. So it's a major point. It's an easy chapter to just blow through because it's like, okay, yeah, they crossed the river, they grabbed some rocks. But they're doing this as a, a significant event in Israel's history because this is the moment we've been looking for for five books and four chapters. The point here is to remember things so that they can have courage moving forward in the future. If they remember what God's done, then they have courage for what God's about to do, but you can't see it yet. And I think that's a wonderful kind of thought to embrace. There's two results. You're going to let your children know what's at, and we've seen this theme before. You're going to teach your kids. That's one result of these stones. You're going to tell them stories about God. You're going to show what God's done. You're going to show them God's grace. When a society stops telling their kids about God, you're in trouble because that is the root of all morality and values. Because if there's a living God that loves you and cares about your life, then his law and that morality matters in your life. And if that's not connected for kids, they go crazy and they start worshiping balls and things like that, which is what's going to happen. So the stones are sitting there and they're going to be visible for hundreds of years to come. And then the second major consequence of the stones, catch that, is that all the people of the earth will see it. God's concern here is not just with Israel or with the Hebrews. The point of all of this is for the whole planet to see what God's doing. And here we are on a Sunday night reading this story. We are still looking at these stones and remembering what God did for his people. So they're watching it. The river stopped. They're making memorials. The memorial then is to, about teaching and education, but it's also to proclaim to the Gentiles what's going on. Even more important, the word Gentile in the Hebrew is goy or goyim. Goyan, am I saying that right, Susan? Goyim. Goyim. Um, what are they going to do next? You'd think, now that the memorials are built, now that they got their base camp, they should be getting ready to fight, right? 
at some point, these young men ready to do battle are ready to charge those walls. They don't know the walls are coming down. They're thinking they got to climb them. And I would be thinking, Joshua, can I start building a ladder? Like, can we start doing anything that has to do with conquering a walled city? Please, right? But we're not going to do any of that. The next chapter, they're going to maim themselves. So this is their new battle strategy. Get out the knives, and we're going to cut ourselves. So <laughs> the second generation hasn't been circumcised because they were under a curse because they didn't go into the promised land 40 years ago. So God made them walk around in, in the wilderness. So it was, verse 1, when all of the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. Remember, that's the second purpose of the memorials. And indeed, all of the people are hearing about it. That's the point they're trying to make. Where was I? They heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. This is where I get the honey, pack your stuff thing. Like, there's nothing left here. The people have come back. It was their land from the beginning. They're coming back to claim it. So it's packed with imagery and lessons. This chapter really ties together the first five chapters. And then we get to the story of Jericho, which we've all heard in Sunday school. But these are core ideas the Hebrews would have studied for 1,500 years that set them up for the Messiah. It made it so when Jesus came, everything fit perfectly. Like the final piece of a puzzle. Thank you for that puzzle, Susan. When you click that thing in and you're like, it all's finished. It's done. And that's what Jesus said on the cross. He was just putting in the last puzzle piece. And he's like, it's finished. It's done. It's this beautiful artwork that God weaves through history. And he's going to start putting a lot of that in in this next chapter five. So get ready for some cross-references. I'm thinking that the word spreads, and if this were a movie, there would be a great montage with all these runners going up to the kings in these different empires telling this story all over the ancient world. And it, it, you know the montage, like what I'm seeing? You can almost hear the music. It's like an action, fast-paced music. And you got all these little ancient world people going, blah, 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 to their king. You don't even need to hear what they're saying because you know what they're saying. And they're saying, like, the Lord dried up the Red Seas. But the word Jehovah gets used there. In other words, they're using the Jewish name for their God, not small l, Lord or God. They're saying Jehovah dried up the rivers. The name of God is getting glory, and it's spreading. And it's spreading fast all over the world. So the Bible points that out at the beginning of chapter 5. Jehovah dried up the Jordan. They're breathless when they say it. Israel's back. She's going to claim Shem's land because they would have called these are the children of Shem is how the ancient world would have referred to them. Shem's back. They're here to claim their land. We know the descendants of Ham didn't get this land and this wasn't theirs in the first place. And Shem's been that, you know, ugly stepchild for about 500 years now. You know, just that group of people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Those knuckleheads are here and they're they're here and God's with them. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? The Amorites are mentioned, not Bashan and not Og. There are other Amorites. This is a great number of people. Um, and those were to the east, so it specifically says the ones who are on the west side of the Jordan. Uh, both the Amorites and the Canaanites are descendants of Ham. And I'm getting into Sham and Ham here because this is going to be important and it helps us understand what Joshua is writing. Because Joshua is writing in terms of Amorites and Canaanites are both names that are actually names of human beings, Amor and Canaan, that were sons of Ham. So he's mentioning these groups. 
Uh, Noah's son Ham was cursed all the way back in Genesis 9. So if you want to flip there, this is a cool passage. I'm going to read kind of a bigger segment. And then hold your thumb in Genesis in the chapter we're in, because we'll, of course, come back and finish the chapter. But Genesis 9... I'm going to pick up in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Notice how Canaan singled out back in Genesis. And Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, keeps saying the father of Canaan. Like, this is an important thing that we should be picking up here. Saw the nakedness of his father and told the two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it over their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of the dead. Because nobody wants to see that business, right? Stop mocking our father. We're going to, like, cover him up because we don't need to see that. Right, Grant? That's nothing we need to see. So their faces were turned away and they didn't see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren, his brothers. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be a servant. So for 40 years of wandering, that's not the relationship these two peoples had. In fact, this is the shift that they knew because it's in both of their histories. It's why the Amorite and Canaanite kings are dreading this situation. They would have known these records and these histories too. They have the same family line and they would have had the same copies of scrolls. So they knew this was a curse and they knew that Shem is coming. So add that to the dread. The, the river stops, plus they got these records in their histories. At least the kings of, of Canaan and and. and Amr would have known these things because they would be knowing, they, like the mass population might not know it, but the kings would. It's the culminating event in the Bible from the flood to here. And we're going back and we're tying right back into the Canaanites, just like they mentioned the Canaanites right after the flood. It's all part of the same narrative. And then in Genesis 10, if you flip forward a little bit, we get this really interesting passage that applies to this chapter in Joshua. Genesis 10, verse 15. Canaan begot Sidon, his first son, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, same family. The Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Lagoite, all these other kinds of things. Verse 18, then the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. They were spread out, but they weren't at that period of time. The dispersion's happening right now in Joshua. But this curse that they got all the way back in Genesis is coming true way up here in Joshua 5. They were dispersed. It says it in Genesis like it was in the past tense, but it's actually in the future tense. It didn't happen in the past. It's happening right now. And so you see where God's timeless, and sometimes he plays with the ordering of when things happen in the past, present, and future tense. But to God... The decision was made the Canaanites were going to be dispersed. They wouldn't get a land. And they didn't have a region that they would be settling in permanently. So in Genesis 11, the descendants of Ham go off as a response to this and they build a Tower of Babel. 
And after they, they build this Tower of Babel and they try to get all the people of the earth to jump in on it, God changes their language and he disperses them for the first time. Here he's dispersing them again. They're going to be dispersed. They don't get to have a big city with the Tower of Babel. That wasn't what God had ordained for these folks, right? So they're, they're hap- here comes the descendants of Sham and the descendants of Canaan are terrified. And that's why. There was no spirit in them any longer back in Joshua 5. That's what it said. No spirit in them any longer. That's in addition to that their heart was dispersed. Oddly enough, the word melted there means to dissolve or disperse. So they were physically dispersed at the Tower of Babel. Here they are spiritually dispersed and dissolved. And there was no spirit in them any longer. Something happened. Do you ever have that feeling like when you're getting in trouble with your friends and you're wrecking something in the kitchen and then your mom walks in? Oh, oh shoot. Or when the teacher catches you writing on the desk? Not that that has ever happened to any of you. That's the feeling of the spirit has left you. What was super fun just became super not fun and even a little embarrassing. The Canaanites had been living outside of God's law, doing whatever they saw was right in their own eyes, and it was like a blast until the descendants of Shem show up and it's time for judgment. And then the spirit goes, oh, shoot, our fun is over, right? It's like stealing grapes from the kitchen until your daughter slaps your hand. And all the fun's just gone. A lot of times when the spirit leaves people, it's because what was fun to you was actually sin and you knew darn well you shouldn't be in those grapes and you knew you shouldn't be writing on that desk you knew you shouldn't be doing those things and then suddenly that conviction comes with the people that are holy because they are living righteously and you know you should be doing that too the spirit left them what was fun is not ever show up at a friend's party and they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing and then they're like oh sorry and it's like don't apologize to me You don't owe me an apology. Or when you're out and people find out you're a believer and then they swear and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I swore. It's like, what, did I just take the fun out of your swearing? Like, am I that big of a killjoy? You swear all you want. See how far it gets you in life. See how much joy it really brings you. You swear it up, buddy. I'm not hurt by your swearing. Go nuts. But maybe there's a conviction that comes when I'm in the room because I do everything I can do not to do those things. You're doing everything you can do to make excuses for doing those things. It's a very different way to live life. So sometimes just walking in the room, just crossing that Jordan, really melts the hearts of the wicked. And that's what's happening here. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. The spiritual enemies faint when God's people stand on God's word and they stand on his testimony. When they build memorials to God, the wicked flee. And they they can't handle it when people just put God at the middle of things. They go nuts. If you haven't experienced it, just wait. It's a pure joy. They know they're going to lose ground because God has already given the descendants of Sham this land and they already know that. They know they're going to lose. The battle's already been won. So, And they have a conscience. And if, what should we say then to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's nobody that stands against God. And they know God's with the Israelites. Romans 8.31. Verse 2. At that time, it's while they're at that time, it's while their hearts are melted and their spirit has left them that the Lord speaks to Joshua a fourth time. And he says, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself, 
circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. So Joshua is going to give us commentary on this, so I don't have to, but I will. But Joshua makes sure that we know why they're going to circumcise themselves, because this is not what you do right on the eve of battle. This is what you do when you have a month to recover, right? But they're doing it at their enemy's gates. They're actually killing themselves or cutting themselves in front of the enemy. Think of this historically. This is the opposite of good battle strategy. But spiritually, they've already won the war. Verse 4 is Joshua's commentary. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Because they didn't want to leave me to figure out the reason. They're going to just tell you. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way. And after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua, and by the way, that flowing with milk and honey is a reference to Exodus. They're, they're quoting the, the scriptures. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places and camp until they were healed. So they're going to rest and heal up. So they move at the side of the city and then they maim all the soldiers in fighting them and cut them in a very mean way. Um, but it's a covenant, and they didn't have to do it in the wilderness because God had said, fine, I'm going to let you be in the wilderness, and he gave them grace. He still provided them food and shelter, but he wasn't with them, right, in that kind of way. He led them, but he didn't necessarily have a covenant with them, so they had to do a new circumcision because this generation needed to make a covenant, and I think there's a couple things in this. One is it says at that time, God acts here as the reasonable response or for how reasonable people respond to God when he does something for them, is they give them their lives. So by doing this to all the fighting people, they're essentially laying themselves out as a living sacrifice before their enemies. Jericho could have marched out of that city and slaughtered every one of them. Remember, Reuben and Gad killed an entire city of men right after they'd been circumcised. Do you remember this? This is how they got in trouble. So two men wipe out an entire city because people don't fight when they've been cut down there. It just doesn't work that way. So they literally lay themselves down as a living sacrifice in front of the enemies. The enemy thinks that they've won, right? But God does this while their hearts are melted away because God knows in their heart they're not going to attack. They're perfectly safe. But the Israelites don't know that. They had to be saying, wait, Joshua, what are you saying? But there's no evidence of resistance to Joshua here. If, they, if God told Joshua to do it, we're just going to do it. It says flint knives. We know from last time we saw circumcision, flint is uniquely a surgical quality tool to use. It's, it's extremely pure and it doesn't carry diseases. It's naturally sanitary. So that's why they use flint. It's also sharp, very sharp. Then Joshua circumcised. It says Joshua in the singular, but there's multiple knives that have been made. And it, towards the end of that passage, it says they circumcised. So obviously Joshua uses the elders. There's thousands of people to circumcise here and they do it in a day so it wasn't like Joshua hand did it himself there's the, all the priests are helping out in this sense then this is a big deal they make a huge point out of this moment in history when they all cut themselves it's a big deal because 
they become gods at this moment. God loved them, God cared for them, God provided for them, but as they obeyed God, the covenant got tighter. And now they're God's children. And this circumcision, this cutting, uh, actually becomes something where they become Israel. And I'll show you that in, in I think, in verse 8. But it says they were uncircumcised. The word there is an adjective. Uncircumcised is actually what kind of person they were, not their physical state, but their spiritual state. They weren't committed to God. Their parents' relationship with God did nothing for them because they have to make it their own faith. If you have faithful, wonderful, God-serving parents, that doesn't do anything for you. You have to do it yourself. So this is odd, but there's also a tone here of rejoicing. Like this is an act of like awesome, let's do this. Kind of like a death pact with brothers. Yeah, we love God, he's got us here, let's do this. Right in front of their gates, let's do this. It's an odd moment in history. Verse 5, uh, their parents were circumcised, but they failed to get into the land. They get into the land, and now they're going to get circumcised. Exact reverse of what happened with Moses, right? It's all kind of balanced like a mirror shining it in both directions. So they obey. They reclaim God's chosen status as their people. This is the end of the reproach of God that they were given back in Numbers. And I'm going to read that passage so we remember what it said in Numbers. Back in Numbers 14, after they failed to go into the land because the two spies give them the bad report. It says, or God is saying, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number, 20 years old and above, except for Caleb and of the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring them in, and they shall sh and I and they shall know the land which you've despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity. It's this generation that had to pay the price because of their parents' faithlessness. Until your car carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, you shall know my rejection. In Numbers, the whole thing with the wilderness is God was rejecting them. Oddly, with God rejects his people, he still gives them manna every day. He still takes care of them. He still guards over them and shepherds them. But he's going to give them some discipline and reject them. When they cross that river, rejection's gone. It's over. We're free from the burden of that curse of sin that came from our parents. That They're released from it. So that feeling of exuberance here, that recommitting to God, laying my life down for the Lord, that's a reasonable service because I could have died in the wilderness, but I didn't. God saved me. So I'm going to give him my whole life because he gave me my life. It's his to have. It's reasonable to do that. So in the circumcision thing, they lay themselves down. They put it all out there. Verse 8, this is really cool. Verse 8 says all the people. The word there in the Hebrew is not people. It's Gentile. They actually call the Israelites Gentiles before they're circumcised. In other words, being a Gentile has nothing to do with your genetics. It has to do with your covenant with God. There's goyim is the word that's used in verse 8. All the people. So that's a super long explanation. Sorry, I went way too long with that. But it's significant to know how they become God's chosen people and the process that that takes. And it's a particular process. 
Their parents' faith doesn't help them, but now they're choosing to follow. As Gentiles, they cross in and become crossers. The Hebrew says they are those that cross, and they do it out of choice, not out of their birthright. They do it out of pure obedience to God. God says it, they do it, and it's that easy. Wouldn't it be cool if everyone came to realize how easy that choice was for God and like the whole planet just got saved today and said, yeah, we could just start following the Lord today. And the whole planet did it. The problem is we're humans and there's a lot of you know pride there. And In the text, God makes it super clear that these people are going to be set apart. In the New Testament, God makes it super clear that his followers are supposed to be set apart. Super clear. And I'm really glad we don't have to do adult circumcision to make that happen. But I would if that's what it took, right? And just say, yeah, I'll follow the Lord. What's that take? I don't know if I'd want to do it in front of a walled city of my enemies that were going to come out and slaughter me. But the circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of dedication. And they do it out of pure obedience. God says, give up your life. They do it. It's, you can have it. God's work's going to keep moving on. The unbelievers are left behind. God asked them to do this after he gets them across the Jordan. After they follow Yeshua, they give up their lives. Do you see the order of this? This is theologically significant. God sees the work that they're doing and he expects them to have faith. They take the first step in the water, God blows the water away. They faithfully cross in a hurry, kind of with excitement. The water comes right back. And then God says, now I want you to commit yourself to me. I've brought you into the land. Now I want your lives. I want your hearts. So they're sitting ducks. They're sitting in front of Jericho. They're unable to move or fight. And they do it right in front of that spot. I don't think there's another reasonable thing for them to do. At the end of the day, you'd think this is ridiculous. They're building monuments and cutting themselves. But it's what God asked them to do. And after seeing God that visibly as a people, wouldn't you just do what God asked you to do for the next step too? To see what he's going to do next? So when God asks you to go to Cambodia, don't you want to see what God's going to do in Cambodia instead of China? Don't you want to understand what God's doing next in your life by being faithful in the little things? He takes you to the big things. And there's no stopping believers that just work that way because we don't take credit for any of it. We just obey what God has and we do it. So Israel crosses the Jordan in front of the strongest fortress in the land. They cut all the fighting man, putting their full faith in God. In God they trust. Then, verse 9, the Lord says to Joshua, this day I've rolled away, that's an interesting phrase, right? I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. We just read that passage. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal. To this day, Gilgal means to roll away. So they're no longer slaves from Egypt. Now they're children of God. The other nations that used to mock them are now scared to death of them. Everything changes with this. They're no longer who they used to be. Their identity has changed at its core, both for their children and them, and for all the nations around them. So this happens when you give your life to the Lord. Everything changes in a day. Your identity and everything you used to be is simply not relevant for tomorrow and what you're going to be because God's going to keep working in your life. It's such a cool image, right? The old is gone. The dead is passed away. The old men are dead and the new men are here to be standing up for God and the women are right with them. Obey Yeshua. Step in the water, crossing, come up out of the water, 
take rocks from your of your salvation to make a memorial of it, set them up. Now you get circumcised, set yourself apart for God. There's no shame anymore. You have a new name because the reproach has left you and your sins are thrown as far as the east is from the left. You see the picture of salvation getting painted? It's super cool. Then if you but don't take my word for it. Let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 where they use this image of circumcision to explain our relationship with Christ. Sorry, it's a graphic image. God doesn't have a PG rating. Colossians 2, I love this. I'm going to start in verse 11. I should make you guess what verse I'm going to start in. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in working with God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that were against us, the law, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Yeshua crossed the river. Everything they used to be just got nailed to the crossing of the river. It's just stuck there forever. Now they're a new people. No shame, just victory. We too are no longer who we were. Tell anyone, tell, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, look, all things have become new. And here we are with Israel. This is a huge moment in the Bible. That rolling away Gilgal is right there. Uh, it's the, the next use of the word rolled is when Elijah rolls up his mantle. Like if you go biblically, the next time the word rolled gets used, flash forward to Elijah, he rolls up his mantle and he hits the Jordan River and it parts and makes dry ground. Like do you think God's got a sense of humor or at least a sense of art and poetry? in this like that word gets saved it's a precious word right Gilgal the enemy is going to take that throughout the rest of the Old Testament like Gilgal will be treated horribly and as a site that was supposed to be precious it gets abused by idol worship and everything else because the enemy loves to take stuff like that and corrupt it but this idea that the word of God holds that space is really very precious but Elijah crosses on dry ground in 2nd Kings 2 verse 8 Isaiah uses the river and the rolling images the next time you see it. And this is what Isaiah says. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. Jordan River means falling waters or tumbling waters. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. That's what Israel is going to be as it comes in to conquer the promised land. Isaiah 34.4 says the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll in the very end. And the next time we see that word is in the Greek in Revelation 6.14. Between this idea of rolling the people through or the, the rolling the curses away and rolling up of the river and rolling up of our sins and the rolling up of the sky, we have another image of rolling, which you all knew I was going to get to. That is the rolling of a stone that gets pushed away from the tomb of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, Mark 15, Luke 24 all use the same image. The stone is rolled away.
there's this idea that the stone takes away our reproach that God's giving us in this chapter. And in the New Testament, when it happened like that, you can imagine these Jewish disciples being raised from little kids, knowing these images, being like, you know what? The tomb being rolled away from the stone, that took away our reproach too. That took away our sins. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us. And you have to think when Paul first got saved and nobody wanted him to be around because they thought they were gonna, he was going to kill him, he went up and studied the Bible for a few years. And he had to get to passages like this and just see the connections and be able to then go out and tell people about it and say, there are no errors in this Bible. It's perfect. You don't understand. It's the opposite of human-made. It's perfectly God-made. And only at, at, by deep study and devotion to it can our little human minds even start to figure out how completely aligned it is in every regard. It's amazing. It's what God did to give us our stones, our testimony that we can read about today. Verse 10 back in our chapter. Let's remember the promises. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho and they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover and unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So <laughs> so four days from when Joshua said they were going to move, here we are there. Here's their battle strategy. Wait by the river for three days. Cross the river when God stops it. Set up some memorials. Cut all of our grown men so they can't do anything. And then let's have a feast. So send out the hunters and go find some stuff, kill some of the livestock. We're going to have a seven-day feast for Passover. That's what we're going to do. That's the battle plan. So they do Passover. It's insignificant that they do Passover, so that's why it's in the, in the chapter. It's a big deal because they haven't done Passover since they left Egypt. And then they did Passover at Sinai, and then they didn't do it for 40 years because God was reproaching them. It wasn't worth doing. He wouldn't accept it. But now that the reproach is gone, the first thing they do is celebrate Passover and have this awesome festival, which is also filled with images of Christ. If you want to go back and listen to those chapters, uh, the Passover is a, a beautiful image of salvation, of bread being broken for you. Um, so Egypt, Sinai, and then this is the third Passover that Israel celebrates, completing this whole promise. And then they're going to wait while they do Passover. So they're waiting. They put their treasure out in front. They memorial build. They circumcise. They have a huge feast. And with that feast comes singing and songs. So literally they're singing outside the city. Two million people. Yes, you could hear that from six, seven miles away. Easy. What's happening in Jericho? Flashback to Jericho. Now they're singing. What are they doing? Well, first they cut all their soldiers. Now they're singing songs. It, it smells like lamb. <laughs> and it doesn't smell like lamb here. It smells like fear, right? The people of God are just winning through joy. They haven't even lifted a sword. No battle happening yet. They ate the produce of the land on the day after Passover. Don't just read over that. What have they been eating for 40 years? graham crackers, right? They're sick of these things. They complained about them, but they learned to not complain. Don't complain. Be a good Jewish kid. But they got to eat the food, real food for the first time, kebabs probably. So they waited. They did all this stuff. You know, at some level, you read the Bible, and these people are like hobbits. These people don't understand battle and warfare. What is wrong with them? They sing songs. They smoke long bottom leaf. 
and they find reasons to feast in the middle of a battle. You know, and you think of the image right after Saruman when the two hobbits are just hanging out eating apples and stuff. This is what the Israelites do. They don't fight. They just sing songs and hang out. There's no obvious inclination for a battle-ready people here at all. Which is interesting. That's not what Stephen Dawkins says. I don't know if you've read. I should have quoted him on this stuff. I'll get him for next week. Joshua is a book of a bunch of rabid, bloodthirsty people. There's, it's the horrible example of war, warmongering. They're not warmongering people. They are feasting and eating food. They're remembering what God's done. That's what they do. That's our battle. The joy of the Lord is their strength. Verse 12, Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna. Oh, darn. <clears throat> But they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Whew, we're going to eat some good food this year, kids. We're done with it. Notice that there's an overlap one day. God doesn't even expect them to have faith. He gives them manna on the same day they eat the food of the land. Nice transition, makes it super easy for them. Now that they're here, God's provision for them will change. The nature of God's relationship with humanity changes a few times throughout history. This is one of the major changes. He's going to change his provision for the people to be based on their work. So now that they're believers and they're chosen and they're circumcised and they're set aside, get to work, kids. It's time to grow up, put on your big boy pants and start a farm. You're not just going to get free food from the sky anymore. I wish that wasn't the case, but that's also kind of like our spiritual lives. The work really gets started once you learn the word and commit yourself to Christ. That's when the life really begins. And that work is a joyful work, I hope, a labor in Christ. God provides, now he changes how he's going to provide. Last thing, this is really, okay, not the last thing, because we still got the commander of the Lord to go. Am I going too long tonight? Yeah, I am. Okay. Notice the attention that, that just got spent to the days. Did you see that? Really careful attention to the days. The day I've rolled away the reproach from you in verse 9, and then in verse 10, now the children camped to get and they kept the Passover. And look at this particular on the 14th day of the month, which says that they're obeying the book of Leviticus. That's the day you're supposed to do Passover. So they do it at a particular day on the plains of Jericho where they could all be seen. And they hit the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. That's day two. You with me? And then in verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. What day is that? Day three. Grant can even count to three, right? And then the children no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Three days. So perfect images of Christ. I love you, Grant. Day one's Passover. Day two, they eat the produce of the land. Day three, the manna goes away. And something new just began, a new covenant. Huge connection to Jesus, and I don't want you to miss this one. It's a big deal. I think it's hidden because they don't put in day one, day two, day three. They do the day after, day after. So you have to do a little Bible study for this one. Luke 22. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles. This is the Last Supper. And then Jesus said to them, With fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. 
So they don't get to eat of the produce of the land until something's about to happen. There's a transition in God's relationship with his people, and that transition remains very similar to the one that Jesus makes. God mirrors the work on the cross with what happens here, and Passover is at the middle of both events. I think this is super cool. And then they do Passover, and then they have this moment where they're kind of in flux between things. They don't know what's going on, right? And then something happens on the third day. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? This is super neat. Jesus calls himself the bread of life, and he does it over and over and over again. Do a Bible study on John 6. Just read John 6 in light of the Passover and what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the bread of life. So when we see the bread of God going away here, and then they got to get to work, what we see with Jesus is they had to get to work, but now God's bringing back the bread of life. And they get a new bread of life that's a spiritual bread of life, not manna from heaven in the physical sense, but they're going to get a spiritual blessing from heaven, and we get it every single day. And he is our daily bread, just like when they were walking in the wilderness. So we go through life, we can actually lean on Jesus in that kind of way. John 6, verse 35. I'm just going to read a little bit of John 6, but it's the whole chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the bread for the life of this world. The next passage is notably unspecific on day counts. From what we just had, the 14th day of this, the day after, very specific. When we get into verse 13, it's not specific at all. Almost like it's the same day, right? And... It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. See how it's not specific on when? It's like the same event. That he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite with him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and he said, Are you for us or are, are you for our adversaries? Interestingly, on the third day, somebody shows up. And I, it's just amazing. When God does this stuff, he does it right. At this point, it's not revealed to humanity that this is Jesus Christ. It's just a man that stands there. But this is what uh, theologians call or Bible scholars call a Christophany. And we believe this is Christ for a few reasons, which I'll go through. But let me finish the passage. Verse 14. So he said, no, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. I can't get the veggie tail scene out of my head. <laughs> little dust popping out to the sides. Joshua fell on his face and the um, to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. Joshua did it. So a man approaches and Joshua steps out to treat with him. I like that Joshua is a good shepherd. He doesn't make any underlings go do this. He goes and walks up to the guy with the sword drawn. And Joshua's a good leader. He's just going to step in there and stand in that gap. God's clearly not in his full glory here because we know that when that people don't see God in his full glory and live, Exodus 33 and John 5, right? That doesn't happen. But God can appear in the form of Jesus and not kill people. So he can reduce his glory or condescend to earth when he wants to. So when God condescends, people can interact with him and talk with him. Does that make sense? So in this instance, God condescends on the third day. The next time there's something that happens on the third day, God elevates or arises, becomes something very different. But the, um, 
the little bit here of this idea that, um, that it's a Christophany is this. There's a scene in the book of Revelation that John has, and angels don't accept worship. And when you see that in Revelation, you can go back through the whole Bible and go, oh, I get it now. In the instances where angels receive worship or a person receives worship, it's Christ. Because real angels, holy angels, don't receive worship. They reject it. And, and I'll read that from Revelations 22, verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, see that you don't do that, for I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren of the prophets and those who keep the words of the book. Worship God. The, a good angel, not a demon, a good angel says, don't worship me. Oh, don't worship me. I don't want to be in that camp. Worship God. I'm just with, I'm at your level. So that's what real angels do. So we see that in Revelation. So when Joshua falls on his face in verse 14 and worships him, this person, this commander of the army Lord does not reject the worship, right? And it's there's no indication here that this is a demon. Like this is the commander of the army of the Lord, which would be Christ or God, the only one worthy of worship. Um, and we know that... Uh, that Jesus does appear prior to the New Testament because in Micah, uh, it says that the one born in Bethlehem is the one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Jesus was there at the beginning, John 1, and he was there from the start. He's there through the whole Old Testament. So at the very end of this whole sequence, on the third day, Jesus shows up in his power and in his glory, ready to do battle. It's kind of a great image. Huge implications. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Jesus, Joshua asks an either-or question in verse 13, and I love God's sense of humor. He just says no. <laughs> you can't answer no to an either-or question, but he does. God isn't for people, and he's not against people. That's not God. So it's also a truthful answer. No, I'm not, I'm not for your enemies, and I'm not for you. No, I don't do that. Um, it's like praying for sports teams. God doesn't really pick a favorite sports team. So stop doing that. God has a plan... And God's question is, are you for him or not for him? It's not if he's for you or not. He's for all of the people on the earth. He wants them all to come into the kingdom so that no, not one perishes. So it's not the right direction that Joshua asks the question. He asks it in the wrong direction. The question should be, I'm for you, God. And that's the end of the story. And that's how God divides up the world and has since Genesis 1.1. There's people that are for God and there's people that are against God. So are you for us or are you for your adversaries? Then there's also this idea that that question, these two questions that get asked, really are the questions. For other people, this is the first question we ask people when we first meet them. Are you for Jesus or against Jesus? Like do that at like a get together and just see how people react. But that's the only real question that matters. If you're for Jesus, we're on the same team. Way to go, brother, sister. We're serving the Lord together. And I don't need to know you that long to start working with you on serving the Lord. And I've gotten to experience a lot of that with Mashay, just going around the state, meeting brothers and sisters in the faith. It's been awesome. Because I can meet somebody for five minutes and it's like, oh, we're on the same team. We read the same book, play by the same rules. Let's go. Let's make a difference in the world and let's do it together. And then the other question is, if you're not for the Lord, watch out. Because they might be nice, but at some point they're just going to stab you in the back. Because they're not on your team. So the only real question is if people are for God or against God. Are they for, I don't know if it's so much against God, it's more like they're for themselves, right? You're either for God or you're for yourself. 
And if you're for yourself, then you're not for the person that's around you. There's no sacrificial love for somebody who's living for themselves. They'll never lay down their life for other people. They'll never make a vow that you can really trust that they're going to keep for the rest of their life because they're living for themselves. It's just a matter of time before that breaks down. So the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua is a servant. He's not a commander. Like, get that? He's the son. (laughs) He's the child of God. And Joshua has absolutely no problem with the servant role because he did it with Moses. So when people learn to serve in this life, they learn to serve God too. It's part of why parents train up your children in the way they shall go and they won't depart from it. Is that when you train our kids in obedience, they don't, have, they don't struggle with obedience to God. If a kid has been told no by their parent, they don't have a problem when God tells them no. Like because they know love is there in the middle of it. But if somebody just always gets their way, then they grow up and they always expect to get their way, they're in for a train wreck with God because there's going to be times where God doesn't give them their way. So I love that Joshua just falls on the ground. I think VeggieTales, actually, that's a great commentary. That instant with the dust popping out, I actually think that's a really great image. That's the image we get in the Bible is that he falls on his face before the Lord. No hesitation. He doesn't have a problem with service. You know, little Larry the Cucumber, he's doing a good job (laughs) of acting. Joshua is defined by his servant's heart in the same way that Jesus is defined by his servant's heart. Yeshua in both testaments is defined by the fact that they're happy to serve their father. That implies that there are, if there's an army of the Lord, this is a massive implication that there are armies that we cannot see at work on this planet. Think of that as a mini-series, right? There are armies at work on this planet that we can't see and we don't know what they are. We'll get other reference to to those as we go through the New Testament. Joshua falls on his face and worships the commander of the army of the Lord. And that word army is not like a military army. It means host, or in the Hebrew, an assembly of all. It is everything in creation that's aligned with the Lord is the host of the Lord. So it's women, children, animals, rocks, because if we didn't worship him, even the rocks would sing out. Everything in all of creation aligned with God Jesus is over all of heaven and all of earth, commander of the hosts of the Lord. And those hosts are mighty and plentiful. So as they're recovering from their circumcisions, this is a good thought to have. You have other soldiers that can go do the, you know, the work for you. Take the sandal off your foot. Oh, I'm sorry, the second question. What does the Lord say to his servant? If the first major question of a believer is, are you... For the Lord or against the Lord? Are you on my team or aren't you? The question that we ask for God is, what does the Lord say to his servant? These are the two major relational questions that a believer has in their life. Are you with God or not for other humans? Are you, or what do you have to command me to do today, Lord, when we deal with God? And if we wake up every morning and just say, what does the Lord have to say to his servant? What do you have for me today? We change our relationship with God as one of a servant's heart. I just like that idea. Those two questions. You can just live with those two questions. Take the sandal off your foot is a direct connection to Exodus 3, where when Moses saw the burning bush, another Christophany, he was told to take his sandals off because he was on holy ground. Joshua knew that language. And this is a, this is a connection where the host of the army of the Lord is basically saying, I'm the same guy that talked to Moses. Now I'm talking to you and I'm connecting to you face-to-face like you did to Moses. Same voice from the burning bush. 
when God's in the room, things get holy. Even the dirt ground gets holy when God's nearby because God sanctifies things, not humans. So why, why, why does this happen here? This idea that Joshua does so that is a key point. Joshua's followed every step that God's given him. He knows that he's doing his role as a shepherd, and then he shows total submission to God. Submission is, in the world, a horrible thing. In the Bible, it's an amazing thing, right? And just take marriage for an example. When in, in the world, it says, submit one to another, right? The world sees that as horrible. I can't submit to her, or she can't submit to me. Submitting is this horrible, evil thing. But submitting in the Bible is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the start to know that we're servants of God and to submit to God. It's not a bad thing when you submit to an all-holy master. It's a bad thing when you submit to an evil master. But when you submit to someone, and I think a lot of husbands and wives would say that, if their spouse is seeking the Lord, it's really easy to submit to him. Because it's easy to submit to somebody who's at least, at least trying to be holy and trying to work for the Lord. And you can work out the differences and the problems from there. But if you got somebody just going their own way all the time, it's pretty hard to submit to that, right? Married people, we know what we're talking about. So why is this happening now? The next part's going to be even more ridiculous than their Hobbit battle plan so far. They're going to go and march and do long hikes and sing songs and blow trumpets. So it's really important that Joshua meets the host of the army of the Lord now because what the God's about to ask them to do in the next chapter next week is legendary ridiculousness. That's what's coming up next. So it's really important at this particular point in the story that they meet the Lord. Joshua's ready to move for God because he starts with submission to God. That is the point. Notice the next line of the story. If you read the next verse, it says now. This is a major cutoff point at the end of this chapter, right? Because all of this sets up now, which starts the next chapter, the first word of the next chapter. Joshua's submitting to the Lord. The people have submitted to the Lord. They've obeyed the Lord and done what the Lord said. They've had Passover and renewed their covenant with the Lord. They've built monuments to remember what the Lord has done. They've put the word of God in the ark where everybody can see it, like a light on a hill shining in front of the Jerichoans. They've done everything the Lord said, even though it doesn't make sense from the earth level, but it makes total sense with what God's doing in the hearts of the Jerichoans. And then we get into next week where it gets even more ridiculous, right? Their battle plan is to not fight. It's just to put themselves in, in reach, like, you know, like a cat staying out of reach of the dog. And that's what they're going to do next. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just love what you do in your word. We love that a story about rocks can sing your glory and your magnificence. We are so honored, Lord, to be able to open up the word of God and read it for ourselves. Lord, we wish that joy on everyone we know, uh, that we uh, can just embrace what you have to say, soak in your word each week, uh, every day, uh, Lord, and see what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we got work ahead of us starting tomorrow morning. I pray everybody in this room can get up tomorrow morning and do the work that you've put in front of them. Do it with joy, with absolute obedience, without complaining. Uh, Lord, that some of us got to carry the ark and let that ding into our shoulders and other people need to get cut and other people just get to sing songs and eat the food. Uh, Lord, wherever we're at in the body of Christ, you've got different work for each one of us. Lord, I pray you bless that work, bless our efforts, bless the work of our hands, uh, as you say in Second Chronicles, Lord. And I just ask you to be with us as we do these things. Bless us in this week. Uh, Lord, the world's getting crazy and I just pray we can be even crazier 
uh, we can be even more undignified uh, than, than what the world expects for your glory. Uh, that when the world goes one way, Lord, we can go another and we can do it with absolute and total confidence. That you're our God and you're our King. You're our strength and you're our joy. So help us, Lord, to obey you and to do it with purity and with dignity and with grace. Help us to love one another, Lord, as you've loved us. Help us to sacrifice for one another because you laid down your life for us. Um, help us, Lord, to teach one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another and minister to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray with each other a little bit. Give your concerns to each other and let's lift them up to the Lord in prayer. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.